0: I want to draw your attention now, please, to Acts chapter 16 and verses 30 and 31. Acts 16, 30 and 31. You know the context and now the text. Then he, the jailer, brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. Well, in 1946, there was a man by the name of uh, Joachim von Ribbentrop and he was uh, a man accused of being a war criminal, and he was a a Nazi. He was a wicked man. But uh, he was a man who heard the gospel, and he was saved. But in the trial, he was found guilty, and he was condemned to die, and he stood on the scaffold, and he stood literally with a noose around his neck, And a man by the name of uh, Henry Garecki, a Lutheran chaplain, asked him if he had any last words before he was executed. And he said this, these were his last words, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And then he was executed. So here's a wicked man, but he was a saved man. And when you hear that, you say to yourself, "Well now, I have, a, I have a question about this. I have a great question to ask. And the question is, what must I do to be saved? Because here's a wicked man, and what did he do to be saved? I mean, he's wicked. So much so that even a secular court finds him guilty and so guilty that he is to be executed. His life is to be taken from him. So, what did he do to be saved? How does a wicked man get to be saved? What must I do to be saved? That's what this man asked. This is the great question the jailer asked. What do I have to do if I'm going to be saved? forgiven, and go to heaven. So what did Lauren do so that she'd go to heaven? What did she do so that she might be spared hell? And what do you have to do to be saved? Well, I want to answer that question tonight, and I'm going to answer it, and Lauren's going to illustrate it when she's baptized. Now, we're in the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is all about how the gospel spread in the Roman Empire in the first century. And Acts chapter 16 is about how the gospel came to the city of Philippi, and in particular, how it came to a prison and how it came into the life of one particular man. He and his family, to be sure, they also believed and were saved and were baptized, notice the order. But how the gospel came to that man, the man who asked the great question, what must I do to be saved? Now apparently they say you can go to Greece and you can see that prison and they say that it's the same prison and and who knows. But the big thing that we're thinking about tonight is, is this great question? What must I do to be saved? And I want to say to you that there's nothing more important in all the world tonight than that we think about this question and answer this question. And, you know, if you're not a Christian, there is nothing in the world more important than that you ask this question, get the biblical answer to this question, embrace that answer, and put into practice in your life what God says the answer is. Namely, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. So that's what we're going to explore and we'll trust that God will bless his word to us. And I want to say several things about this question. First of all, it's a vital question. This is a vital question. Paul and Silas were imprisoned for unjust reasons. You can look at verses 20 and 21 and you look at the whole context and you realize they were being railroaded. There was no justice justice at all in this. The charges were false. And furthermore, Paul, as a Roman citizen, you weren't allowed to beat him up and to imprison him without a hearing of some sort. And there had been no hearing. So this was a miscarriage of justice. But really, it's God who is behind this, and in the providence of God, Paul and Silas, these two men whose purpose it was to bring the gospel to the world, now they find themselves in the providence of God in a prison and in an inner cell, the cell where they only put the serious criminals and those who had committed serious crimes. These were men who had committed no crimes at all, but there they are in the providence of God in those inner cells with their backs beaten and torn up and their feet in stocks. That is, they're sitting on the ground and their feet are being held fast, probably metal stocks, and they can't lie back because their backs are torn up. And so, in the middle of the night, there they are praying and singing and praising God. Now, Philippi was known for earthquakes. They used to have a lot of earthquakes there, and there was a series of earthquakes that probably led to the decline of the city. But on this particular night, there was a well an extraordinary, divinely ordained earthquake that God used to bring about a tremendous work in the life of one man and one family. And God uses this earthquake and the terror that it induced to move this man to say what he does in verse 30. Then he brought them out, that is, he brought them out of their cells, brought Paul and Silas to a place where he could talk to them, and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And I'm saying to you, there is no more vital question that he could have asked, and no more vital question for you if you're not a Christian. He's concerned about his eternal destiny. Perhaps he had heard what the demon-possessed girl had said about Paul earlier in the chapter. There was a a demon-possessed girl in Philippi, and she said in verse 17 of this chapter uh, that these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. So perhaps he heard that, and he knew that these men could answer the question, I'm going to ask them what to do in order to be saved because they know because they come from God, because they preach the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ. And he certainly must have heard what Paul and Silas were singing. Verse 25 says that they were listening intently. It wasn't just that they were listening to these people sing, they were listening intently. They were just like that. And he wanted to know what they were singing about, and now he inquires of them about what is the heart and soul of their religion. What do I have to do to be saved? He's not concerned about his physical well-being at this point. He had been. If you're a jailer and your prisoners escape, you will be dealt with severely by the Roman authorities. And that's why he got his sword out, he was ready to commit suicide, because he thought, well, I've lost my prisoners, my life is over, I might as well take it myself. But now he knows, Paul had said, look, we're all here, nobody's escaped, don't do yourself any harm. So he's not worried about his physical life anymore. Now he's concerned about something far more important. Now he's concerned about something of much deeper significance. Now he's concerned about his eternal destiny. Now he's worried about what's going to happen to him after death. And that is the vital question. How will I escape sin and hell after I die? Now people are concerned about all kinds of things, as you well know. And they're concerned about all kinds of questions. And these questions plague them. These, these anxieties weigh upon them. What kind of career should I choose? How will I achieve success? Where will I find a spouse? What about a family? So many things about life just trouble us. And we worry about this and that, about politics and all the issues of the day. And why don't people think about eternity? And they're concerned about providing for their families and they're concerned about uh, avoiding trouble. They're concerned about old age and they're concerned about retirement and they're concerned about all kinds of things that relate to time, that relate to our pilgrimage in this world and our existence now and here. But they give almost no thought to what happens in eternity. Almost no thought to what happens after you die. They're concerned about death, and they're concerned about avoiding death, and they're concerned about avoiding uh, any kind of disease that might uh, bring death along prematurely. They're concerned about eating well and exercising passionately, so as to postpone their appointment with death and they think about all that they can do in order to stay alive, but they give no thought to what happens after they die. They know that inevitably death comes, but they don't think about what happens afterward. Perhaps they think about the actual moment of death, and perhaps they think about where they're going to be buried. Uh, Hugh Hefner, some of you will know about him. He was a degenerate young man and he became a degenerate old man and then he died. And we're told that uh, he paid $85,000 in order that he might be buried next to Marilyn Monroe. Why that's a matter of concern, nobody knows. But did he give any thought to what happened the moment after he died? Did he give any thought about the one before whom he would stand after he passed from this world to the next? You see, the vital question is, what happens then? How can I be saved? What must I do to be saved? What must I do so that after I die, I'm okay? You say, well, to be frank, you know, I don't know what happens after death. Well, I would say to you, you, like, you'd better find out. Like, you have to be sure. You can't just go around in a fog and say, well, I don't know. Like, it's coming. Like, you can't avoid it. The statistics are stunning. You know, one out of one dies. You're going to die. Somebody like me is going to speak words of committal over your dead body. So you need to be sure what happens after death. You say, well, whatever, I, I just don't even believe in God. I just don't believe that there is a God. And I certainly don't believe that even if there is a God, that he's going to hold me accountable and so on and so forth. But really, I don't even think there's a God. And so I'd say to you, like, are you sure? Are you sure? Like, you'd you'd better be sure about this. Because everything depends on this. Are you sure? And, And what if you're wrong? I mean, what if I'm right What if what I'm telling you from the Bible here is right and that there is a God before whom one day you will stand to give an account for your sins and you need to be saved and you need to be rescued and you need to follow in in Lauren's footsteps and believe in the Lord Jesus so that you might be saved. You need to do that because that's the gospel truth. What if that's right and you're wrong? Well, the consequences honestly are horrific, aren't they? And that's why I'm saying to you, this question this man asked is a vital question. Everything depends on the answer. Because what's at stake here is your eternal destiny. I mean, we're not even talking about the rest of your life. However many years in the kindness of God you're given. But we're talking here about forever. That's what's at stake. So that's why this is such a vital question. What do I have to do to be saved? Now, secondly, it's a personal question. What must I do to be saved? I mean, he's asking this about himself. What do I have to do? He had a family, we know that, but he wasn't at this point asking about his family. He wasn't saying, what does my family have to do? He's saying, what do I have to do? And more than likely, he had friends. A lot of these Prison uh, prison guards were these jailers, a lot of them were former soldiers, and so he probably had a lot of friends in the army. But he wasn't asking about them, he wasn't inquiring about their destiny. He was saying, What do I have to do for my safety? And it's important that you realize then the personal nature of this issue. This is deeply personal. You have to understand that the Bible says that each one of us will stand before God on our own. Each and every one of us will stand before God on our own. And I can't represent you before God and you will not represent me before God. And parents, no matter how much they love their children, will not represent their children before God. Your child will stand on its own, on his or her own. And children can't represent parents. Everybody stands before God on his own. This is deeply personal. And 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body. Each one gives an account before God. Each one of us, on our own, will stand before God. And you can look to the left or to the right, and you can look up and down and all around, and there's no one with you. You will stand on your own, unless you're a Christian, in which case Christ is with you. So this is a deeply personal thing, you see, And that's why he does well, this man. He does well to say, what must I do? I am not here to inquire about others. I'm here to seek information about my own soul and my own eternal destiny. What must I do? And you see, the answer is that the good news that Christianity is deeply personal, too. I'm saying that this is a deeply personal issue. What must I do? It's me before God. But Christianity is a deeply personal issue as well. Christianity, said Luther, is all about personal pronouns. Jesus is my Savior. He's my Lord. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see those those pronouns. You see how personal. You see that this is, I mean, in a real sense, it's me and Jesus. He saved me. He forgives me. Not nameless, faceless people, but he loves me. Lauren will hear from the lips of Jesus, her own name. There's a marvelous passage in John, in the Gospel of John, chapter 20, where Jesus is raised from the dead and Mary has been looking for the body. She sees the risen Christ and she doesn't recognize him. Her eyes are full of tears until he says, Mary. It is so intensely Deeply, passionately personal. And if you're a Christian, he'll speak your name as surely as he said, Mary, because he loves you. He gave his life for you, he shed his blood for you. He'll take you home to be with him where he is. It is, Christianity is deeply personal. And you see, the Bible makes it very clear that Jesus wants to save all kinds of people, all kinds of individuals, not just individuals of a particular type, a particular color, a particular ethnicity, No, all kinds of people from all over the place and from everywhere in society. And even in this chapter, you find the diversity amongst those who are saved. There is a poor and troubled girl who was demon possessed and she's saved. There's a rich and socially prominent woman, affluent as all get out, and she's saved. And there is a rugged blue-collar worker, and he's saved. And they're all in Christ, and they're all in the same church, presumably, and they all have one Savior and one Lord, and they'll all be in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. The Lord, this is all personal. He saves individuals and individuals, no matter what they're like and no matter what the details of their particular lives. So this is a vital question, and it's a personal question. And this man says, what must I do? And that's a question you need to ask. Thirdly, it's a reasonable question. This is a, this is a reasonable thing to say. This makes sense. You take precautions about all kinds of things. I dare say that you obeyed the law and when you came here, you put your seatbelt on. Makes sense. It's, it's eminently reasonable. You do all kinds of things that are for safety's sake and that make sense. You have home insurance and you have car insurance and you probably have life insurance. People who build homes, they have to build them according to code so that the people who live in the house are safe and things don't collapse over them. It makes sense then to do it according to the rules. When pilots uh, fly airplanes, you're happy for the fact that they take all the reasonable and even some unreasonable precautions and they go over everything and they check Everything, maybe multiple times, and we're quite happy for that. We say, Well, it makes sense because you're up in the sky. I don't want anything to go wrong. Makes sense. Well, this man, he believed that he was a sinner. He understood that he was a sinner. That makes sense. It makes sense because while we know it from the Bible that we're all sinners, we know it from history that we're all sinners. And we know it from bitter and personal experience that we're all sinners. And so this man uh, believes that he's a sinner and he believes rightly and reasonably that God will judge sinners. The Bible makes that very clear and your own conscience makes that very clear as well. You know, you have a sense inside you, a sense of ought. You know, you know. I ought to live like this. And when you do things wrong, you know they're wrong. That's called a conscience. That's what God wrote in your heart. He said, now this is wrong, and this is right, and when you transgress that, you know it, and you know he's going to judge you. This man knew that. And it's a reasonable conviction then to to look for an answer. It's a reasonable thing for him to go and, and say to Paul and Silas, look, I know I'm a sinner and I know God is a holy God and he'll judge me for my sin and send me to hell, as the Bible says. So tell me, what must I do to be saved? That makes sense. It's eminently reasonable. The Bible says, it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes judgment. It's eminently reasonable to, to look for a way out and to try and deal with this issue. It doesn't make sense, does it, to go and to gain as much from the world as you can get. And that's how people live, don't they? They go and they try to build some kind of empire. They, they try to gather as many toys as they can. Years ago, there's a bumper sticker, he who has the most toys at the end wins. Well, that's absolutely stupid. Just gathering toys. It's ridiculous. No, Jesus says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? You can gain the whole world, become emperor of all things, and then stand before God, and he sends you to hell because of your sin. That's that's tragic. So it's eminently reasonable now to come to a man like Paul and say, look, what what do I have to do to be saved? What do I have to do so that I might be forgiven? Show me the way that I can be safe. Show me that one place in the universe which is a safe haven for a sinner like me makes sense to ask that. To call upon a man who knows about salvation, to listen to a young lady like this, was found forgiveness in Jesus? Makes sense? Makes sense to me? And I'm sure if you're honest, it makes sense to you. Thirdly, fourthly, rather, it's an urgent question. It's an, it's an urgent question. I don't know the, the tone of voice. You know, when he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't think he was nonchalant. The Bible doesn't doesn't give us color words to show us really exactly what his tone of voice was, but I have no doubt he was in earnest. There's nothing more important to him at this point. I mean, he's not fooling around. He's he's deadly serious about this. This is no time for ceremony. He doesn't care about dignity at this point. He wants the answer. And he wants them to tell him how he can be saved. And he doesn't ask about the earthquake. You know, He doesn't say, well, what what happened? And why is that happening right now? He doesn't, you know, there are all kinds of mysteries in this world. All kinds of things we don't have answers to. and, And maybe you get hung up on that. And I would suggest to you that look, those things can be dealt with in time. But the urgency of this moment is that you need to be right with God. And it's urgent because death can come at any moment. And see, this man understood that. He was just a sword stroke away from the next world. He was ready to end his life just a moment before this. So death, I mean, death is front and center for him. He knows just how close we are. He knows we're a breath away from the next world. And that's why this is such an urgent question. What do I have to do so that when death comes, I'm safe? You see... Death is as close for you as it was for him at that moment. So you can go home tonight, you're feeling great. I mean, you might look around and say, oh, you know, <laughs> that guy there, he's, he's, just, uh, he's just a few donuts away from a heart attack. You know, you're, you're, a, you're a fine specimen. You go home tonight, and you lay your head on the pillow. And maybe you open your eyes and you see God. Maybe God comes to you tonight. There's a, in the Bible, it talks about a man, who's, we call him the rich fool. And he's got plans. Oh, he's got plans. Oh, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there. I'm accomplish this and accomplish that. And God comes to him and says, tonight... Tonight, your soul is required of you. You don't have one more day guaranteed to you. Frankly, you don't have another hour guaranteed to you. You know, that aneurysm in your brain right now could pop just like that and you're dead. You say, don't be melodramatic. I swear to you, I'm not being melodramatic. This is the God-honest truth. God can come and say tonight your heart stops and tonight you stand before me. Tonight your journey ends and you will be ushered into eternity without Jesus and without hope. So that's why this is urgent. This is an urgent question. It is a question not to be put off. It is a question not to be delayed. You need the answer to this. People try to not think about the urgency of it. They try to not think about death. But once in a while you have, you have people who realize that, you know what, like death is really important to remember. There's a man by the name of Philip of Macedon. He was the father of, of Alexander the Great. So Alexander was great, but Philip, to be honest, was a, he was a, a man of great significance and power himself. And um, he seemed to understand how important death was. And apparently he appointed a slave to come to him every day And say, Philip, remember, you must die. I mean, you want to see everything in context of that, don't you? So every day, Philip, you must die. I do believe that I'm standing before you by divine appointment to tell you, you must die. And you had better be ready. And the only, only, only way to be ready is to be in Christ, is to be saved by the Lord Jesus, to be able to stand with that great holy band, Lauren's one of them, of the redeemed, of those who love Jesus, of those who are covered by his blood, and those who are clothed in his righteousness, And who will be with him forever? This is an urgent question, and you must answer it tonight. Number five, and lastly, uh, this is an answerable question. There are many questions in life. Uh, You ask me, I'll say, (laughs) I don't know. I mean, important questions. I have no clue. I got the answer to this, though. (laughs) Got the answer to this. There's no more important question. But we have the answer. The answer is right before us. It is given to us in God's holy word. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. Can't be that simple, you say. It's absolutely that simple. It's astonishingly simple. It's it's just jaw droppingly simple. Just trust the Lord Jesus. Ask him to save you. Peter is walking on the water because, you know, Jesus was walking on the water. Peter says, "Let me come to you." And he steps out of the boat and he's walking on the water, but then he gets he begins to see the water, begins to see the waves, and he begins to go down. And he looks up and he says, "Jesus, help me, save me." And the Lord Jesus saves him. It's as simple as that. Now, What must I do to be saved? Well, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Now, the first thing to say about this is that God wanted this man to have an answer. That's amazing, you see. God has no obligation to save anybody. But God wanted this man to hear the answer. God wanted this man to know that if you believe in Christ, you'll be saved. So God brought Paul and Silas to this man. God directed them. And I could, if I had time, I'd show you how God directed them to Philippi. But I don't have time. So you'll have to take my word for it. But don't take my word for it. Read it yourself. Read it yourself later on. So God directs Paul and Silas to Philippi and to that prison so that that man will hear the gospel. What amazing grace. We're going to close with amazing grace. That's amazing grace, you see. And an earthquake happens. At that moment, seriously? Yes, at that moment, because the earthquake happens not to free Paul and Silas from their chains, but to free this man from his. To free him from his sin. God wanted this man to hear the gospel. God, I mean, why did God put Lauren in a home where she would hear the gospel? He could have put her anywhere. He put her in a place and in a home and in a family where from her earliest days she'd hear the gospel. That's just amazing grace. God wants us to hear the gospel. God has brought you here tonight. You think you drove yourself? You think you planned it? I'm telling you this. It's in the goodness and kindness of God. You're here by divine appointment. You're here so you can hear this text. You're here so that you can listen to my message. You're here so that Jesus can say to you, come to me and I'll give you rest. The other thing I want to tell you is that God provided an answer. I mean, what's the answer to our sin and the judgment that will surely come upon us because of our sin? Well, God's provided an answer. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on Jesus. He's the Lord, you see. He's the Lord. He's God. And believe on Jesus because he's man. And he's Jesus of Nazareth. He's one of us. And that's the Savior that God has sent. God sent Jesus into the world. He's the Lord Jesus. He's God so he's mighty to save. He can save poor and wicked sinners like us. He's all powerful. And he's the Lord Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. He's, he's one of us. He's a real man. And he's one of us so he could, he could take our place. That's what happens on the cross. You've heard about the cross. You know the cross. you probably memorized verses about the cross. And you know that the reason he went to the cross is to pay for the sins of people like us. He could do that because he's man. He's one of us. And so, the, you know, the Lord Jesus is God's provision for our salvation. So God's provided the answer. What must I do to be saved? Well, first of all, do nothing. Don't do things you think are going to get you to heaven. Because it's not. Don't think that if you do stuff, you know, you're going to fix up your life now because you heard a message about the judgment in hell. So I better clean up my act a little bit. Better stop doing this. Stop doing that. And, you know, maybe i go to church once a year. Easter's coming up. Go Good Friday and go on Easter Sunday. Boy, that'll do it. Twice in a week. That's what I used to think. I went Christmas and Easter. God can't want more than that? If if that's all that had been, you'd have sent me straight to hell. That won't save you. Giving money to the church, that's not going to save you. We're not asking for an offering. We don't want money from you. That's not going to get you to heaven. No, the Bible says there's nothing you can do. You are one hopeless character. Just stop it. Just stop trying to save yourself. It ain't going to work. Just put yourself in Jesus' hands. Just rest on him. Just lean on him. Just throw yourself into his arms. Just call on his name and ask him for help. Just look to him. Just look at him and see his love and see his sacrifice and see his willingness and his power and ask him to save you and he will. You come helpless and he helps you, you come powerless and he'll give you strength. You come in all your sin and he cleanses you and he clothes you in his own righteousness. I mean, he does everything for you. So, just what do I do to be saved? Well, so stop doing stuff because it just makes it worse. And just trust him, ask him to save you, and he will. And then, you know, God's provided an answer for you, for you. I'm not not talking about the person sitting next to you. I'm talking about you. So, in the plan and purpose of God, you're here tonight to hear this. And if you're a Christian, then you're thinking, wow, yeah, I know that. I know that. That's great. And if you're not a Christian, oh, my goodness you're hearing the best news you could ever possibly hear. I mean, there's nothing in the world, there's nothing in the world better than this. That Jesus has provided salvation and he's offering it to you free of charge. It's like there's a meal up front here, you know, you're famished, you haven't eaten in a week, there's a meal here and somebody says, help yourself. There's Drink over here, and there's food over here, and there's dessert over here, and go to town. And you say, Well, now, what I want to have to, what, what does it cost? What do I pay? And he says, It's free. You say, Well, no. He says, Yeah, it's free. And Jesus says, Come here. I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. I'll give you forgiveness. I'll give you life abundant life in this world, I'll take you to my heaven and you will live with me forever. And you say, okay, what do I have to do? And he says, it's free. It is absolutely free. Just trust me. I'll save you. That's. I mean, that's just spectacular. I got nothing else to say to you beyond that i got no other message that I could possibly give to you that even comes close to that. There's salvation full and free for you. If I knew that I was going to drop dead in one minute, I'd have nothing more to say. That's it. I've given you the best news I can, the best news there is. And it's that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And he's willing and able to save you. That's just great. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have saved Lauren. We thank you that for most of us here, oh, you've saved us. And we thank you, Lord God, that if anybody believes in the Lord Jesus Christ tonight, you'll save them. We thank you in Jesus' name.